Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wiggum. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 396 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we spoke with Sarah Susie Eiberg about her sobriety journey while practicing law. Today's podcast is brought to you by Albatross, Postali, and Posh Virtual Receptionists. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. Stephanie, it's been a week, an interesting week in the world. And I know you specifically, and let's be clear, I am talking about when the Supreme Court dropped their latest opinion. And you and I were talking about, and I even texted you at the time, <laughs> kind of in the middle of it being like, mm. but I would love to hear your story about where you were when you heard it, what you were doing. I mean, what was going on with you? Yeah. And I guess there's a point to the story. So hang on. <laughs> yeah, there is a point. We're not just, you know, chatting. There, there's a whole point. So I am still involved in my sorority that I joined in college. And a lot, a lot of people are like, oh, you, you are? And it's like, yes, I, I am. <laughs> it is a leadership organization for women. And I have found my postgraduate experience to be so rich and rewarding and much more meaningful than just the short time I was in in college. We actually have a nonprofit arm that does really great work for leadership for women and scholarships for women. And so I sit on the board of directors for that organization. And we were at our national convention that happens every three years. And I was very fortunate, grateful that I actually was going to present or I did present to the convention body about my story and about why I give financially to our foundation. And so the short story is we had just done a run through of the speech. I was giving my talk during a luncheon on Friday. I had just finished kind of doing the run through of my speech when I came back to the table, picked up my phone and of course saw the breaking news because it was by that point everywhere. And it was weird because like I was in this very like different world, like, you know, you're kind of in convention mode and you're at a conference and I wasn't really paying attention to like the outside world, but then this, you know, story hit and it, no matter what side of the issue you're on, like it's a jarring thing that happens, right? Yeah. Like you're going to react. And yeah. I felt that. And so one of my sisters and I ended up kind of just going on a little bit of a walk where like we needed some air, we needed some space. And in that conversation, I realized I was about to have the microphone. In just a few minutes, I was being brought up to the stage to speak and I had a decision to make in that moment of, do I mention this decision? Do I talk about it? Like, how does this impact me? And what do we do with that? Like, we are lawyers, we are leaders in our profession. I was being honored that day as a leader in this organization. And what responsibility do I have? Yeah. And in that moment, also, as you can appreciate, thinking through like everyone keeps saying like, this is a political issue and, and organizations mm. are 
nervous about making political statements or what are perceived to be political statements? Like, is this an issue we should even be talking about? Is this the right platform for it? Is this the right forum for it? And so all of those thoughts are flooding my head. And and I can imagine for our listeners as business owners, you might be thinking about that too. Like, does my law firm speak out on this issue? Or, you know, should we take a position? Will we alienate clients? Will we mm-hmm. upset people? Like, these are hard decisions as business owners that we're thinking through. And how do we talk about it? And I'll be honest, as a owner of lawyerist, I'm not actually sure how everyone on our team feels. Like, I think I yeah. know, but I've been, I feel like I have to be careful as the boss. Right. Like, am I allowed to ask or not ask? So, I mean, I haven't, Yeah, I haven't asked. I think I said I've made space that if anyone wants to just talk to me about it, like I am all up for the discussion, as you know, because I do like talking about things, but I don't want people to feel compelled or like I'm their employer and they have to think the way I think. And like, these are complicated issues in times we live in. Yep. So I don't know. I just, I guess we wanted to say that today. Like, and yet I said, I'm about to get the microphone, like literally. (laughs) So I rewrote my speech in my head. I didn't tell anyone. I was like, it's one of those moments where I was like, I'm not going to ask for permission because I'm just going to go with this. And I didn't go too far. Like I told my story. I explained why I was supporting this organization financially and why I believed in the story. And the the vision of this organization, of our sorority, is to empower women to change the world, which I am very passionate about. I've done a lot of research and I truly believe like if you want to change the world, empower women. Like in third world countries, it's been shown that women are the ones who like educate the children and feed the village and clothe the village and all the things. And so there's like actually research that if we support women, like they can change their whole village. And so this is a mission that's very close to my heart. And so then I was able to sort of pivot at the end of my speech and say, you know, I still have dreams and my dreams are for women in this organization you know, I want to empower you to change the world. And to do that, we need more of our women in the C-suite. And then I said, on the Supreme Court. Yes. And in public office. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I said, like, on Supreme, the Supreme Court, they all got it. They knew what I was saying. But also, it was true. Like, I do want more of these women on the Supreme Court. So I think in that small moment, I hope I was able to use the microphone. I was able to use the platform to empower women and to share, to tell people it's okay to say something. Maybe I could have gone further with my statements, but maybe I didn't need to, right? Like maybe just the fact that I stood up and said something and acknowledged that moment in the way I did. Yeah. And I was so honored that so many women after the talk was over and the lunch was over. Everybody was coming up to me and, and I had so many come up to me and just thank me and give me a hug and just say that was perfect. And, and I don't know, like I still, you know, we second guess all the things. I was like, could I have said more? Should I have said more? But at least I took a moment. Yes. And you can start small too, right? Like if this is not normally in your personality to speak up for things, you don't have to go straight from zero to burn it all down. You know, you can start in these incremental ways, get your confidence in speaking out and then start saying more, not to say you don't have the confidence because you do. You had to switch at the moment, which was a little different, but just to speak up 
you know, there's always that phrase, you know, speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. And I think about that a lot, like speak the truth, even if it's small, even if you're, if it's to one other person, even if you don't think it's enough in the time, it's just builds on each other. And I think that's really important. And that's what you did. Oh, thanks. I tried. I guess I just would say this to our listeners, like, I don't have all the answers. You know, I've been reading a lot, listening to a lot. I, I certainly have feelings, strong feelings. But what I do know as a lawyer, you know, we talk about being an officer of the court. I do feel very strongly about our Supreme Court as an institution and the couple of opinions that have come out in a very short period of time and the way we see them use precedent or not use precedent to make decisions is alarming to me. And I do know this, whatever way you come down on the, the issues that are being decided about, we'll put that aside for a minute. I care very much about the institution of the Supreme Court and our judicial system, the role that we play in our larger democracy. And I do think as lawyers, we need to be leading that discussion. Like we understand these issues and the ramifications better than most. And we need to be leading those discussions. We need to be talking to people who aren't lawyers about it so they understand. And I think we need people smarter than me. Like I heard a proposal this morning on how they would redo the Supreme Court. And again, like, I don't know, I'm still figuring it out, but I know we need to be talking about it and we need to be, you know, this is where our bar associations and all the organizations we're in need to speak up because this does impact us and our profession in a profound way. And we need, we need to be the leaders here. So maybe that's my soapbox. Like, Whatever way your issue is, you should care about the institution of the court. And I hope that you'll use your voice when you have the opportunity. Absolutely. And now here is our Sarah's conversation with Sarah Susie Iberg. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Susie Iberg. I am a social security disability attorney with a solo practice just outside the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Well, it's so nice to have you on. You and I were chatting before we hit record, and we were talking a little bit about your journey and how you've gotten to where you are now. And we all know you as a beloved member of our Lawyerist Lab community, which is our paid coaching program. And we've all had the pleasure of working with you at some point and watching you implement some really positive things into your firm practice and into your business and watching you grow. But I want you now to kind of take the audience back since this is maybe one of their first times hearing from you and take them back to maybe when you started your journey and kind of tell us about some of the struggles and challenges that you had. And then we can kind of get into where you are now. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I actually started my solo firm right before the pandemic, kind of before we knew that was going to be a thing that we thought was going to last for six weeks before we could get back into things. I had been doing contract social security disability hearings for a big company based out of Texas for like eight years at that point. And it was great because I have four kids and they were all little and they had a lot of needs for their mom. And I really struggled well, paying for childcare, to be honest, when I, when my twins are first born, the cost for infant childcare was going to be basically what my take-home pay was. And so I had already started to do some of this contract work 
And my husband and I talked about it and decided, you know, if I left full-time work, I could still do contract work, but we'd have a lot less childcare costs than if I were to stay working full-time. Childcare costs and, and that kind of thing is a whole nother topic that it is spend a lot of time <laughs> yeah. talking about. We could have a whole other podcast episode on just being a mom or a parent yeah. and owning yeah. your own business and how you balance those struggles. But that's a part of this. Yeah. And I really liked that I could be with my kids almost all the time, but I could also bring home money for my family. And so the contract work was great. But, you know, just before the pandemic got started, I had been feeling professionally just a little tired and bored and ready for the next thing, really feeling like I needed that kind of push for some growth. And so when the pandemic hit and a lot of contract work started to stay within the firms because they didn't have to travel the hearings anymore, it was a really good push for me to start my own firm. And I really am so grateful to the lawyerist and the lawyers coaching for that. I really felt like I had a ton of support and a place I could ask questions and felt like I didn't make a lot of the missteps that a lot of people maybe do when they first start their own firm. And I didn't feel quite as alone. And so I've always been really grateful for that experience. And I talk about the things that I've learned through the lawyerist a lot when I'm talking to other attorneys about small businesses or law students that are looking to maybe work in a small firm. So I'm really grateful for that. But a big piece of things for me is this idea of well-being, which we know is not simply the absence of illness, right? Some people think, well, I'm not sick. That doesn't mean that you're well. And I know some, we have people listening from all over the country, but one thing we have in Minnesota is this organization called Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers. And it's an organization that's based on helping attorneys and being a resource, a free resource for attorneys and a confidential one that are looking for some counseling or help with mental health issues, but also substance use or other addiction like gambling addiction type issues. And in Minnesota, they provide free counseling. They have case managers. They have partnerships with psychiatrists and counselors to try and get help for attorneys. But a lot of what they spend their time doing is education Mm -hmm. and showing up at bar association events to help get the visibility there. And I think remove some of the stigma or fear around reaching out to an organization like that. And prior to doing the contract work, when I, when I was pregnant with my twins, I was actually working for the Minnesota State Bar Association as a staff member in their recruitment and retention and sort of marketing department. And it was great because the firm that I had been at before that was this was a smaller firm with no health insurance and no maternity leave and, and none of that. And when I switched from the firm to the bar association, I got paid the same amount and worked about half as many hours. So it was a good move for me, Yeah. but I used to see LCL at all of these events and I knew them from law school too. And they had the same exhibitor at most of the events. And part of my role was to also be an exhibitor. And then when we would have bar association conventions, LCL would be there as well. And I, I always really liked their director and would spend a lot of time talking to her, but I always felt guilty because, you know, I knew at the social hour, I was going to have some drinks and really in, enjoy my time that way. So I, I always felt like, <laughs> like Joan was watching, like I had to, you know, <laughs> had to, had to make sure I wasn't over, yeah. overindulging and, and anything like that. And I felt a little guilty, like, okay, well, great day exhibiting. I'll see you at the social Joan, you know? Yeah. Well, it sounds like just to interject for a second. It sounds like you 
really believed in what they were doing and you really supported what it was that they were doing. But maybe there was this like a little bit of internal confliction between what you were doing and in your life and maybe like the mission of what this organization was doing. But I'm curious kind of how that coincided or how that collided maybe. Yeah. So I, I really did. I really do, do believe in LCL and the mission. And I think that we have an ethical duty as attorneys to make sure that we're, that we're well and that we're competent so we can serve our clients. And we have a lot of responsibility and the practice of law can be really stressful and not everybody does a great job managing it. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners, either law students or lawyers, remember law students who got themselves a reputation for overindulging. I was not one of those, but I, you know, I was always where the social was too. The other piece of my personality is being really, really extroverted. And so I was always doing the social thing rather than, not rather than, but usually rather than some people doing the studying thing. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of my energy in law school connecting with other people and networking because I, I knew I was not going to be a a top of the class student. And I knew that, you know, if I worked 20 to 30 more hours a week, I could probably bump myself up maybe 10 places in, in my, in my class ranking. But I knew if I actually put that energy into organizational leadership and getting out and meeting people that that would serve me a lot better. And it did, but a lot of attorney and law school, law student, social events are centered around alcohol. They happen at bars, they happen at happy hours, they happen at networking events with tickets to the bar. And so I think it's a huge part of the culture. And so there was a point for me, it's kind of funny, my husband and I had done a whole 30, which if if you're not familiar is like no sugar, no dairy, no grains, no anything and no alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like a challenge. Is it a yeah. 30 day challenge? Or? Yeah. Yes. It's a 30 day challenge. And it was great. We felt awesome. It is so labor intensive that it's not really sustainable as a lifestyle change for us. Mm-hmm. But other than when I was pregnant with my kids, that was kind of the longest period I had that I was really strictly sober since I came of age to drink. And so I think that combined with being a mom to young kids and just not getting out very Mm -hmm. often and having this sort of lifestyle shift from being really independent and being able to do whatever we want to being at home most of the time and in, in home most of the time, it caused a shift in what would happen when I did have those occasions where I would go out and I'd be able to drink. So motherhood, especially young motherhood is very isolating for a lot of people. And I was already doing this contract work where I would travel to a hearing site, talk to maybe a security guard and my disabled client and a judge, and then drive home. And often it was several hours and it was a lot of alone time, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, now looking back, it's kind of great. And after having spent two plus years cooped up in a house with, you know, the rest of my family, I could use a little solo drive time, but yeah. At the time it was hard because I am so extroverted. Yeah. So because my kids were little and things weren't virtual, I wasn't seeing other people. I wasn't getting to do like the kind of bar association events that I did before the kids were little. And so I was getting less of that. So what would happen is when I would go to a convention or when I'd be at 
you know, a social or a happy hour, I would have, a, you know, the drinks that I would usually do, but then my inhibitions would lower by the alcohol and my extroversion would just become amplified by mm-hmm. the alcohol. And then it got to this point where I was just fucking obnoxious, you know, (laughs) and because of the feeling so good about getting to be around people, Mm -hmm. then I would drink more, more, Mm -hmm. much more than I needed to, or really would do under normal circumstances. And I wanted to stay longer. And so I'd always be there. The, like, I'd be like one of the last people to go. And then when we were at home, I realized I started to feel the need to have like a cocktail at home Mm -hmm. in order to just kind of decompress from all of the stressors of, you know, young kids and having this contract work and trying to fit everything together. And so did you have four kids at that point? Yes. Yeah. Walter would have been, let's see. Yeah. Cause Walter was born in 2016. So he would have been a two-year-old and the twins would have been like maybe five. And this was before you started your law firm while you were still doing the contract work? Yes. Okay. Yep. So my kids were little, little, there wasn't many opportunities for that kind of going out. Yeah. But I remember that year, that August, I had been at a convention for my law fraternity mm-hmm. and it's always a lot of drinking at those things. And that's just the culture. It's like business all day and then social events until the wee hours. And that's where I started to notice it didn't even feel like my personality. I was just like, just obnoxious just because of the combination of the alcohol and the the extreme extroversion. And I just didn't feel like me. And then Mm -hmm. later that fall, I had actually been honored as the new lawyer of the year for the MSBA that year. We had a whole full day conference and then the post-conference sort of social. And then I just stayed with some of the other staff and and people. And my husband couldn't get a hold of me because I was not paying attention to my phone because I was mm-hmm. having a great time with the people in front of me. And he's he got super worried. He ended up having to have a friend come to our house so that he could drive to the cities where I was and check on me. And that was the last time I drank mm-hmm. because I I felt so terrible and humiliated, right? That like, and these are some of my closest friends who don't judge me for it at all, but I couldn't believe it. And I happened to know one of the case managers at LCL, he and I knew each other before he got sober and certainly before I did in the context of like just being colleagues. And I sent him a message. I was like, I think I need to be done with this. And can Mm -hmm. you help me? Yeah. And he said, let's talk tomorrow. And that's what we did. And My dad is in recovery. He's also an attorney and his dad was an alcoholic and he was, he's very similar kind of trajectory to me, except for obviously he was not, obviously he was a lot older when he stopped drinking. Okay. And so I kind of had this sort of example of this sobriety. He did the AA route and really, really felt strongly about that program. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to him too. And I said, Hey, here's, here's where I'm at with stuff. And I am not happy with like who I am right now. And here's what I'm thinking about doing. Mm -hmm. He's very pro AA, but I really struggled with just the label of an alcoholic. And I think part of it is because of the stigma, but part is because it just didn't really feel like me. Yeah. What was it about that label that didn't really fit? (sighs) A few things. One, and this was kind of confirmed for me by 
the counselor that I worked with at LCL, who was the first person to tell me, you can quit drinking without identifying as an alcoholic. <laughs> like you don't have to do that in order to stop doing this. And, what a and concept, she was like, right? <laughs> I was so like floored by that because my dad was, and I love him and he has been such an inspiration. And it's so nice to have an example of someone who recognized this issue in their own life and was like, I don't want to be this. I don't want to be this for my kids. I don't want to be this for my career. I don't want to be this for my, you know, my grandkids. Mm-hmm. But he was, he very much leaned into that identity of an alcoholic. And so I couldn't relate to that right away. And I knew that he wanted that for me. And I just, I finally said, dad, I I don't, I need you to take a step back so that I can do this, like how I need to do it for me. Right. It makes sense though. If I'm familiar with the AA program, I've had several family members go through it and I've been on that journey with them. And it's like the first step in AA is admitting, admitting that you're an alcoholic. And so they really do lean into that, that admission and that identity and like stripping away all forms of self-empowerment to change the situation as they have you lean into your higher power. And so I, I have watched and I've coached so many women who have been in a similar situation as you, who struggled. And it was like that black and white thinking of, well, I'm not quite like at the AA level. And I don't know that I relate to that, but I want to make a change. And I don't want to go down this potential path of like things getting worse. So talk to us about what you did, what changed and sort of how that led into now how you're running your life and your firm. Yeah. So, and which by the way, if there are women listening to this, that have that sort of Thing. There's this book called Quit Like a Woman with uh, the radical choice not to drink in a um, something, something society. It's a fantastic book that really is a kind of female experience focused because there's just there's different elements to that for women than there is for men. So I knew I wanted to just take a break and like not drink for a while because I didn't like who I was when I did it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a problem that was easy for me. I can be like, okay, I'm not going to do it. And I was scared. I'll be really honest. I was, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to not drink, which is a weird thing to think about now. And I was afraid of that label. I was afraid of the stigma of like being a sober person. I was afraid that people were going to think that I was an alcoholic because I had made that choice to get sober. And so if that is, that might be a fear for people that are listening to this, that was a real fear for me that people were going to label me as an alcoholic and, and view me differently because yeah, I think of you as weak. Yeah. Yeah. I have a problem, yeah. you know? Okay. But before we go any further, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to kind of like fast forward on that note specifically. Yeah. What have you found to be actually the case of how people view you and, and not at all. They don't, <laughs> I mean, people don't care. Like they really don't. And it's respect great. you more. I think so. I think there are some people who, who definitely do think that. And there are some people who look at that and are like, yeah, I, you know, I hope that some people can kind of look at their own use and see whether that still makes sense or is sustainable for them. Cause what I realized in looking back on it was, and I still don't identify as an alcoholic. I just, it's not a label, but I was, I was abusing alcohol. I was using it as a crutch to mask my mental health, which was declining under this the stresses of, of being a mom, of trying to hold together this contract work practice 
and being really isolated. It was all kind of coming down on me. And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful that I quit drinking before the pandemic. <laughs> I was just going to say that was all before the pandemic. Came uh-huh. yeah, yeah, I was already feeling these things before that happened. And I just, I just feel really grateful mm-hmm. that that was the case. So when I look back, I was misusing alcohol and I was using it as a crutch to mask anxiety and depression. And the reason that I feel very comfortable that I, that that alcoholic label is not the right one for me is because I don't have cravings and I was able to stop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't have some of the struggles that some people do because it is a journey and it's a journey for a lot of people. And there is, it's a journey still we're taking, even if you relapse or even if you, you know, end up using, or you have more of that addictive behavior around alcohol use. My biggest concern when I stopped was I need to find something else to put in place of this, to help me manage some of these things. And so for a while I did this, the thing that I kind of, that we would do was our kind of our evening ritual at our house was to have a B&B on the rocks, which is like a kind of a spicy cordial that has a really high alcohol content. <laughs> and, and it was just kind of like our, our habit, our relaxation sort of habit in the evening. So I replaced it with tea, with this super tasty cinnamon rooibos tea that I really enjoy drinking. And so I would have that instead. And then the way that I decided to manage the sort of the mental health aspect of things was to lean into exercise. And so I started running and I started running really consistently to have something else to do to help me relax. And I still do it. I still use running and exercise as a way to manage my mental health. And I can tell on times that I've taken breaks from running my mood and my, like my depression will go up and my mood declines. And I, it's like a tangible thing. I used to think by the way, that people who needed exercise, like needed it or could tell, you know, when they weren't having it, I used to think that that was, you know, kind of, kind of crazy. (laughs) Like that's, that's weird that you can feel just the difference that you want to exercise because it makes you feel good. I I used to think that was a little weird and it's totally true though. I can tell when I haven't been exercising. Me too. Yeah, that I have a lower mood, that I don't feel as good. And then you don't feel like exercising and it becomes this whole cycle. Yeah. You know, this topic of of well-being in general is so unrelated to like what I'm doing here at Lawyers, but I got my degree in complementary and alternative health. And my whole career plan was to become a naturopathic doctor. I lived in San Diego. They have one of the best naturopathic medicine schools in the world, Bastyr University. And so I got my undergrad in this like holistic health environment. And I come to appreciate what holistic health really means, what well-being really means. And you touched on this earlier, how it's not just one thing, but it's mm-hmm. it's all of these things interplay with one another. Even the way that we lead in business and the way that we run our law firm and the way that we raise our families all intersects with how we take care of ourselves and the things we do in our personal time and how we feel about ourselves when we're alone with ourselves. And like what you're saying, exercise, I mean, everything they say about how it improves, you know, the whole long list of things it improves in your life. It's true. For me, it kind of acts as this like balancing activity. It balances everything. And I immediately feel better afterwards, but it takes a little bit more effort to exercise than it does to open a bottle of wine. It does in time. (laughs) I want to say too, 
it could be walking. Like walking is actually really great cardiovascular exercise that I think people think of as not being really effective for your health, but it totally is. Oh yeah. And the other thing that exercise does is, you know, if you've read burnout by Emily Nagoski, there's this stress loop that biologically used to be it acted to keep us safe from danger. And yeah. biologically, we were like running away from a predator. When we were done running, that closed the loop on this stress. But the way that we live life now, there's just constant stress. And there's no way, like people aren't closing the loop. So they're experiencing this burnout. So there's no way to help your body physiologically stop feeling stressed out, which then affects your you know, cortisol and your hormone levels and throws everything else out of whack. And so exercise can be not the only way, but a really great way to close that loop. And I think that that has had a really positive impact for me too. But when we think about well-being, it's not the absence of illness, right? And it's not just physical well-being. There's an Institute for Well-Being in the Law that is doing studies on law students and lawyers and, and trying to provide resources and education on this topic of specifically well-being for lawyers. But one of the things that they've come up with is this, they have a graphic about just the different areas of well-being. So it's emotional, social, physical, occupational, intellectual, and spiritual. Those are the kind of six core places. And they have they have this graphic set up and everything's like in a little circle. Occupational, intellectual, and spiritual are kind of up here. And the emotional, social, and physical are underneath. And it's placed that way very specifically because if your emotional, social, and physical well-being are not balanced or not in tune or not doing well, you cannot have occupational well-being, you can't have intellectual well-being or spiritual well-being. So it really is focused on that idea that, you know, these things are our core and the building blocks for having these sort of higher things. Like you, you just can't, it's hard because I think as attorneys, we're trained to really strive to always be the top and to sacrifice a lot of times our, our sleep or our own wellness in order to get there. And it's just not sustainable. And I think one of the things that when I talk about my sober journey that I try to talk about is just the how there's this stigma against mental health generally in our society, but it's extra hard for attorneys to be admitting an issue with anything because we are also ethically required to be competent. And many of us have practices that are referral-based. So if you are out there about being sober or out there about getting help for mental health issues or having depression or having anxiety, you know, there's this fear that it could financially hurt you or it could make it so people don't want to refer you cases because of that, because, yeah. you know, you're unwell in some, in some way, I will just say, I've not found that to ever be the case though. in the yeah. entirety that I've been doing this. And as everybody at lawyers knows, um, when you're your authentic self with people, it just resonates in a way that's different. And so not drinking is authentic for me and being an, a non-drinking person is authentic. I feel a little fortunate because of that extra extroversion. I don't really need alcohol as a social lubricant or to feel comfortable in those networking rooms. I know that a lot of people do, do rely on that to help them feel like they can be social and that's not an issue for me. And so that's kind of a, a privileged point of view that I try to be yeah. cognizant of when I talk about it. 
I think it's worth looking at though. You know, if someone is identifying as that's me, <laughs> mm-hmm. I need that. That's something to stop and look and maybe go back to, we recorded a previous episode with the author. And I think her name was Annie Grace, the author of the book, I think it's your naked mind or my, my naked mind or something. And then the alcohol experiment. And she talks about that if you are even questioning whether there's a problem or things need to change, it's worth stopping to at least have the conversation and to look at. Yeah. And we are all about being intentional. And yeah. I'm like so drawn in by your story. And I want to know now kind of how things have changed for you since we were kind of get, getting in that direction, you know, the things that you've discovered and realized and how things have changed and how you've built this successful firm. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors as always. And when we come back, we'll talk about how things are going for you now and some of the movements that you've been involved in. The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could clone yourself? You could take a call while you're in court capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Since you can't be in two places at once, let Posh answer. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365 to answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. The Posh app puts you in total control of when your Posh receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Service. That's posh.com forward slash lawyerist and by albatross legal workspaces when running any business including a law practice there are critically important operations that are often overlooked and ignored by lawyers top on that list is data security ransomware protection data leaks and data backups those tasks can seem unimportant and time consuming or an added cost and even with it teams involved they're often misconfigured and mismanaged Albatross Legal Workspaces is an excellent solution for law firms to streamline those types of operations. Albatross Legal Workspaces was built to be the all-in-one office for law firms. It stores all your applications, files, desktops, and servers in your own private cloud that is accessible from anywhere. No need for expensive desktop or server upgrades or unresponsive IT companies coming to the office and the mundane yet critical security and backup operations are seamlessly integrated, hassle-free. The service also includes 24-7 IT help desk. Albatross Legal Workspaces covers you from A to Z. To learn more and receive one month of free service, please visit albatross.cloud forward slash lawyerist. That's A-L-B-A-T-R-O-S-S dot cloud forward slash lawyerist and by Postali. Finding a marketing partner for your firm can be challenging. Are you getting sound advice? Is your marketing agency always working in your best interest? You shouldn't have to worry about these things. At Postali, they believe marketing companies should adopt the same duty to their clients that is required of the legal profession. For this reason, they require that all team members sign a fiduciary oath to act in good faith and put clients' best interests ahead of their own. They service with care, 
candor, and loyalty. Postali is a full-service digital marketing agency exclusively for lawyers. To learn more about how they're different, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. That's P-O-S-T-A-L-I dot com forward slash lawyerist. We're back and Sarah and I, Sarah and Sarah on the Lawyers Podcast today, are back talking about how Sarah's intentional choices to focus on her well-being as an attorney, as a mom of four, including twins, has really benefited her life, her career. It sounds like things are going better than you even expected with this choice of just removing alcohol from the equation, but tell us more. Yeah. So I really don't miss it. I don't miss the restaurant bill, right? <laughs> it's always so expensive. I don't miss the, the liquor store bills from what we used to spend. And I was very fortunate that my partner stopped drinking at the same time that I did as a way to support me. I think it would have been a lot harder if I had a partner that was not supportive in that way, because it would have just been harder to avoid and the, mm-hmm. the kind of social pressure. So I want to recognize that that's a piece of it too, for me, that I had a wonderful supportive partner who wasn't someone who was saying, no, you're fine. You don't, you don't need to do that. He jumped in right away and was like, yeah, if you want to do this, I'm doing it too. And let's see what happens. And so I am eternally grateful for that because I think that that helped me to really be successful too. Yeah. And that's not to say that if you don't have a supportive partner in that way, that you can't do it. That you, yeah. I mean, you have the power within you to change anything in your life and you can get that kind of support from elsewhere. Even if you don't have a partner, or you don't have a supportive partner, but yeah. that I, I see that that was a real value to you. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was. It just made Shout it so out. much easier. <laughs> Shout <laughs> out to your man. <laughs> Thanks, honey. No. And I, sh- I could have done it. I could have done it if nothing else had changed because I just have a mindset where I can be pretty disciplined that way. And if I make a decision to do something, I can follow through, but it's not that way for everybody. And I will argue that everyone listening to this podcast has put themselves through law school or or at least the vast majority of them. And they can do it. They can put their minds to something positive. Right. And I guess what I mean to say is that there are some folks who are listening to this, who may be alcoholics or may struggle and it might not be that easy to yeah. just kind of, I think because I didn't have this sort of break, cause it's a brain chemical issue. That's mm-hmm. what addiction is. And so it's not something that you can just will your way out of always, you know? And right. I think anybody who's worried, I know that there are like, we're very fortunate to have LCL in Minnesota. And I, I depended on them, especially in the very beginning as of just a, I would just check in with them and, and they were very supportive. And that, that one counselor gave me the freedom to like, not label myself and still do this. And that was huge for me. So, you know, I just, I recognize that it wasn't just pure willpower on my own that I was able to do that. I had resources that, that were really helpful. And, and I think to your point, if someone is listening to this and is going, Oh, I've had nights where I, I was an obnoxious asshole and I kind of wish I hadn't been or I've had times where, you know, I'll have a cocktail every night for a week and, or maybe I do that now and maybe that's not the best thing. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research out there to show that there are negative impacts of continuous alcohol use on our brain and our cognition, on our health, generally on our heart health, on our cardiovascular health, on our, you know, brain functioning and brain cells. Like we all know that. Or even just mental health. I mean, it it can, it's a depressant. It's a depression. If you feel down and you're drinking because you already feel depressed, this is not helping. Not a solution. Yeah. 
And then the, you know, crappy, I don't miss hangovers. Oh my God. I really (laughs) don't, you know, but I'm not really, my reason for getting sober is not because of the negative impacts of alcohol so much as it's just a really, I'm just much happier with who I am when I don't. And I, I don't miss it in my life. And there's a lot of positives to not having it be a part of your life. Yeah. And you identified that that was something that you were using to cope with stress. And there are all kinds of things that people, attorneys especially, use to cope with stress. I mean, you have to. It's a very stressful line of work. It's very easy to get very emotionally involved with your clients and the cases and what's at stake. And you have to have something to process that stress to help you relax at the end of the day, to help you dissociate from career so that you can actually continue to live your life and show up fully for your families, but then also be able to show up again for your clients the next day. So what are some of those things that you see are positive resources that lawyers who might be struggling with alcohol, or they might be struggling with gambling, or they might be struggling with all kinds of different substance use Right. Disorders, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Where can they go to make a change, to get help that isn't going to make them look bad? Yeah. So the nice thing about an organization like LCL is there are likely ones in, you know, your home state, wherever you are. I know that there are, there'll be an equivalent because this is becoming to the forefront. So we've known for a long time that attorneys are problem drinkers. Like it's just, (laughs) it's, you know, we get it in law school. They give us all the talks about substance use. And, and also, so because it's so stressful, because it's high stakes, we could spend a whole nother podcast talking about secondary trauma in the profession and people just need to cope. There are organizations like LCL. There are things like NA or AA that are really fantastic and have a track record of helping people get clean. There are partial hospitalization programs within, you know, I know we have them in Minnesota. There are these partial hospitalization programs where if you're experiencing significant mental health stressors and you need a break, like there are programs like that, that you can get help. If you are feeling suicidal, if you are thinking that things might be better, if you weren't here, then that is definitely something to consider. And it may be that you have a comorbidity with an addiction that is making your mental health worse. But a lot of my clients, I do disability work. A lot of my clients who have substance use disorders are self-medicating because of mental health. The interplay between those two cannot be ignored. And so if you're feeling that maybe you're overusing something to help cope with another, I really think getting to the bottom of, of what's causing this want to escape or this need to decompress with a substance, like, you know, let's get at the underlying piece of that. You heard it from Sarah's mouth herself. You heard it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, we here in the lawyers community, we respect you, the listener. We respect you even more for the things that you do to care for yourself because you are so valuable in this world. I'm talking to you who's listening. And so we're encouraging you to get help in the ways in which you think you need, or maybe you don't know, but just ask anyways. I mean, right. we, we experiment and so that we can show up in this career? Well, and if, you know, I mean, there's dry January is a thing. And a lot of people learn a lot when they just try to completely quit something like alcohol use, just to see what happens. You might find that, man, I lost five pounds, 10 pounds, because (laughs) I just had all these extra calories, or I, I don't have a headache anymore, or I don't feel as down, you know, there are some really positive things. 
being a solo or small firm attorney is especially, it's even more important to be well, because if you get sick or if you become incapacitated, there's not really anybody to take over for you, right? Like I like being well for myself. I have to be well for my family and I want to be well for my clients too. Cause I know that that means that I'm doing the best work for them too. So, you know, I view it as, as part of my profession to be well and to talk to other people about being well. Cause I think, and things have changed since I, even since I stopped drinking, it has become, I think more acceptable. More people are making it as a health choice versus like a oh, I have a problem or I'm labeled a certain way. They're just consciously choosing to drink less or not at all for the health benefits. And so one of the positives to that is that there's a lot more non-alcoholic options. There's more mocktails at restaurants. It's more kind of socially acceptable. And people are thinking about it, especially within the bar associations where I live about having those other options and having events that aren't necessarily so centered around drinking or at bars or things like that. So there's like yeah. some conscious thought, but there, we have a lot more work to do in our profession. Part of what I try to do when I talk about it is help with that stigma. Or, it, you know, if someone listening to this makes a change or at least feels seen by the stuff that I said, then it's worth it for me to share. But there's so, there's so much more to do. ABA's task force for lawyer well-being did a study in 2017 and one of the statistics that always sticks with me from that was that 6% of law students had considered suicide in the last year. And that is not okay. And we have to look at what that means for our profession, that that many law students aren't even in the practice of law yet, but are feeling that kind of desperation that that would be something that they would consider. Yeah, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't get easier once you graduate law school and you you start on your career path and life kicks in and you maybe start a family and you get older. Absolutely. So, to summarize, kind of what I see is that you have this incredible story of how you've made personal transformation. And I just want to take a minute to thank you for the work that you've done on yourself because. All those times when it would have just been easy to abandon your path and just go back to how things were, the way that you were used to, you know, the easy way of just practicing old habits, all those times that you chose to make that investment, and it's a daily choice in yourself, has a ripple effect on the world around you. It has a ripple effect on your clients, has a ripple effect on your family for future generations now, because you've got kids and their kids. I mean, they're all going to be able to trace back this story that they've created in their mind based on how you've lived your life and how you've ran your business and how you've ran your family. And so first of all, that's what I have to say to you as a fellow mama and someone who really respects you and who coaches lawyers. I know how hard it is and I don't want your efforts to go unnoticed. And thank you for also just coming on this podcast to be vulnerable and talking about your story and talking about your struggles. I mean, that's not easy. So thank you for that. But tell us about what you're working on now, what you're excited about, and sort of how it all relates to this path that you've been on. Yeah. So some of the things I've figured out, I've learned a lot more about myself just from starting a business. I really didn't want to have my own law firm. I didn't know anything about running a business and I didn't have any desire to have to make all these decisions about like what to do and all of like, how am I ever going to manage that? And 
again, I'm really grateful to the lawyers for having a roadmap, literally, for me to do that. But what I discovered was I really, really like it. Mm-hmm. I love identifying as a business owner. I love talking about, you know, starting a firm, developing this kind of stuff. I actually, I actually saw Sam Glover just the other day in at the Minnesota CLE Center. We were no both kidding. there for, yeah, we were there for a how to how to start your law firm sort of program. My panel was called how to start a law firm when everything's on fire. <laughs> and then he was there to talk about marketing with Jess Birkin. And so it was kind of fun to have that come full circle, but I, I feel really grateful for that. I love talking about it. So I didn't know that about myself before I did this. And then I also really leaned into, I've always kind of, as you could tell, when I would talk about LCL, even before I, I used their services myself, felt really strongly about their mission. I feel really strongly about improving this profession for people who come after. A lot of the work that I do in professional volunteerism is aimed to make this profession better. I've been involved in, spent a lot of years on a task force with the Minnesota State Bar Association to push for an early bar exam option for students in Minnesota to take the bar exam in their third year to try and alleviate some of the debt and some of the doubt that comes with not being able to work because you don't get your bar results until several months after graduation. Now there's a lot more innovation around the bar exam coming, and I feel really strongly about that. But I've been fortunate to be invited. Our Supreme Court here in Minnesota has a, are really taking the concept of lawyer well-being seriously. And we're having a summit tomorrow. What day is it today? Yep, tomorrow, sort of relaunching. It was something that was started before it's a call to action is what they call it but it had started before the pandemic we had all these stakeholders like bar association members and professionals we had small firm owners large law firms government attorneys we brought together all the judiciary brought all these stakeholders together to have a real conversation about well-being in the law and what it looked like and what the problems were and what could be done. And we had all these points that everybody was going to do. And then we were going to check back in and figure out what kind of progress we made. And then the pandemic hit and then there was nothing. Everybody's just like emergency survival mode. So we didn't make any of the kind of progress that we were looking for. And now a lot of these problems are worse because of, you know, what's happened over the last two years. I was going to say, if there's any, a time for that to come together, man, it's right. So now we're kind of relaunching this call to action and we have a, an event tomorrow to kind of kick that off. And I feel really passionately about being a part of that. I serve on the Minnesota State Bar Association Executive Council as sort of a representative at large. And I get to be in the room where it happens, so to speak, in terms of a lot of policymaking for our state bar association. And so those are the things I really care about. I also love being a part of... Um, a law school ta- uh, class that I help adjunct teach called lawyer as business owner. And now, you know, that having gone through a lot of this myself, I feel like I can speak with some credibility to these law students who are actually coming up with a concept for a law firm and formulating a business plan before they even graduate. Wow. That's it's my favorite class. I love it. It's so fun. And I, I tell yeah. them over and over, I was like, you guys, I know attorneys who practice right now that aren't doing the kind of thought that you're doing around this. So. Yeah. Just goes to show, you know, again, my point of the things that you've done to invest in yourself are really paying off for not just you, but for massive amounts of groups of people and for generations to come. So if there was one takeaway 
from this episode that someone listening, you want them to take away, what would be your hope on what action that they would take after this? I think if anything that I said resonated, or if when you think about stopping drinking or anything like that, or looking into that part of yourself, if you feel scared or if it makes you upset just to even think about it, I I hope that you try. I hope that you reach out to a service like LCL. You don't have to, but just, you know, quit drinking for a week, see how you feel or two weeks or three or a month or a year and just see if you can do it and make it, make it more of like a health challenge. Like you would for some kind of exercise program and just see and be introspective about what kind of impact it has on you. Because I have never heard of anybody who um, regretted regretted it. it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Nobody really feels bad about missing out on that, you know, bar tab. That is the hangover. Such a good point. And that applies to so many different substance uses that, you know, people do. And thank you for, for saying that because it's true. Like no one ever woke up the next morning and they were like, I'm so glad I got shit faced. (laughs) I feel awesome. (laughs) Right. But if you can set your fears aside for a minute and just be willing to experiment with how you'd like to maybe try living this life differently or try running your firm differently. That's what we're all about. We call it lab for a reason. We put on our lab coats and we try different experiments to see what works and see what comes up out of that and see what you know, like you said, to quote you, how it impacts you. And then I think once people realize like, wow, even just small changes, even if it's not alcohol, but even if it's just with the way that you're doing your morning routine, or maybe it's, you know what, I'm just going to cut out like this one thing that holds me back for a while. Mm-hmm. And I see how it affects me. It really does end up having a positive influence on everybody else. Yeah. And I think small changes and consistency is the key to really having a a much longer impact over, over the long run. I'm so proud of you. Thank you so (laughs) much for sharing all of this. I mean, I know this wasn't easy, but I really appreciate you opening up and you kind of nudging people in the direction of their well-being. Anything else that you want to leave with before we end? No, just thanks for inviting me and, you know, lean into the fear. If, If you're feeling scared of it, there's, there's a good reason why. Yeah, good point. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10-minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.